0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning. There you go. I had to turn it on, not them. Good morning. Uh, Again, so excited that you're here with us as we are worshiping here at Crosswinds Church and uh, really excited for us to continue in our series called Who Am I? based off of the book of Ephesians. If you missed us last week, we, we talked a little bit about the context of the book of Ephesians as a whole. And one of the things that we saw about this book was that Ephesians was written to a church in the middle of an identity crisis. See, they had understood what Christ had done for them on the cross, and they understood that they were now changed because of what Christ had done. But at the same time, they began to question and wonder how on earth that applied to their lives now that they were Christians in this day and age. And so Paul writes this letter to a church that is in the midst of trying to find its identity. And he tells them that their identity is based on what Christ has done for them. That they have a new identity on, or because of what Jesus has done on the cross. This morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 15 through 21. And I love this passage because it's a passage that basically tells us things that we should be doing because we are Christians. Now... It's important for us to, to catch the key phrase there, because we are Christians, not, not saying to become Christians. I think one of the worst things that we can do for our spiritual lives is to take this passage and say, okay, this is what I have to do. This is what I have to do for God to accept me, to get into his club, to be one of his chosen people. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is telling us that every single thing that we talk about here this morning is based off of what Christ has already done for us in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. In those first three chapters, he gives us the why, why we do these things, and the why consists of the fact that God loved us so much that he chose us before the foundation of the world. That God loves us so much that he decided to make us his adopted sons and daughters. That while we were once dead, he decided to make us alive with Christ, raising us from the dead so that way we could be alive with him. It says that we have been united in Christ to be one church, one body, with people who are completely different than us. And this was God's plan from the very beginning. And it's on that background, that basis that we are able to move forward in confidence knowing that the things we do aren't to try to earn salvation, but are rather as an act of gratitude for the fact that God has given us a new identity in Christ. Our passage this morning talks a lot about significance. See, the truth is every single person on the face of the planet desires to be significant in some way for some people they desire to seek that significance in the fact that they try to be the best the top of their profession other people try to be significant in the fact that they want to be famous and they want to have a lot of money and still so for others it's it's a little more subtle than that and that what they just want to do is they want to be approved by someone in their lives whether that is a spouse or a parent or their coworkers or even god himself but in all of these cases, there's a desire to be significant, a desire to be someone, to be noticed, to make a difference in the lives of those who are around us. One of my favorite quotes on the issue of significance is actually written by an atheist uh, named Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, for those of you who don't know, was a, an astronomer back in the 70s and 80s. He was an instrumental to the NASA space program. In 1977, we sent this one space uh, satellite into orbit called Voyager 1, and we sent it out into the outer solar system, and it began to take pictures of the planets that were out there. So it went past Mars and and Jupiter and Saturn and so on. And in 1990, it finally made it to the outer edge of our solar system, and it turned around before it went out of our space and, and took one final picture, a panoramic shot of the entire solar system. And this is really the most profound picture I think I have ever seen. Let's go ahead and throw it up here. If you can see this, uh, for some of you, it might look like this is actually uh, one of those pictures that someone had their finger over the lens when they took this. But you want to throw up the next picture. Uh, If you see this red circle here, and in the middle of that red circle is a white dot. And that white dot is earth. This is earth from over three and a half billion miles away. And this was a complete fluke. They didn't expect to get a picture of earth when the satellite was that far away from it. It was just caught in the glare of the sun off of one of the, solar, uh, of, of the satellite's uh, solar panels. And Carl Sagan, he writes this about that little dot. just want to read this for you. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every saint and sinner in the history of mankind, has lived there on what he calls a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. See, Carl Sagan looks at that picture, and what he comes away with is a sense of complete and utter s- insignificance in the midst of how vast our universe is. He says, well, why even bother? The created world is so, so big. Why even bother trying to make a difference When there's so much insignificance in this life. That's what Paul addresses in this text this morning. It's what Paul addressed in our text last week as well. It says in the midst of all of this insignificance. And the fact that yes we are very very small. We can make a lasting impact in the lives of those who are around us. And the way we make a lasting impact in the lives of those who are around us. Is by living a set apart life. When we live a set-apart, holy life, God uses our lives to make a difference, to impact and transform the lives of those who are around us. That's really the first, uh, the, that's what we talked about last week in the 15-second version of that. And Paul builds on that this morning and says, okay, well, we're going to talk a little bit about how we can make a difference, but we're going to talk more so about how we prepare ourselves to make a difference in the lives of other people. How God has equipped us to make a difference in those lives. And that's where he starts here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. I want you to just follow along with me as I read this aloud. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, what Paul is saying is that based off of everything so far, based off of everything we've talked about, the fact that God has chosen you, that God loves you, that God has transformed and redeemed you, Based off of all of that, live a set-apart life and pay attention to how you live that life. Live in a wise manner, not in an unwise manner. Have you ever noticed that some Christians just tend to make a bigger difference in the lives of those who are around us? Some people are just more effective at making an impact in the world around them. Some of that is based off of talent. God has given some people more talent than others. That's just the way things work. Uh, Some of it is based off of experience. God is going to use someone who has been a Christian for 50 years in ways that uh, someone who's been a Christian for five months probably can't be used yet, at least for the time being. But ultimately, it's an issue of wisdom. God uses wise Christians in great and mighty ways. See, in Scripture, wisdom is a really big deal. We see wisdom talked about constantly in the Old Testament. In fact, there are several books that are dedicated to this topic of wisdom. And Paul, or excuse me, the biblical authors, they tell us that wisdom ultimately comes from God himself. Wisdom is what helps us make an impact in the lives of those who are around us. That's really what our text is about this morning. Our text basically is telling us that living wisely enables us to make a greater impact in the lives of those who are around us. When we live a wise life, God is going to use us to make a greater difference in the lives of the people that we interact with each and every day. See, being unwise necessarily is, isn't necessarily uh, sinful. It's not necessarily sinful to watch back-to-back-to-back-to-back movies on Netflix instead of going outside and enjoying the sunset. But it is foolish. And God will use those who are wise, who are intentionally wise, more so than he will use those who are not thinking that way. Our text is really straightforward. It tells us how we can be wise in three different ways. And that's how we're going to follow this morning. We're going to look at these three different ways that we can cultivate wisdom in our own lives. So that's what we're going to be doing. The first one is that wisdom consists of a good stewardship of our time. Wisdom consists of a good stewardship of our time. Take a look here at Ephesians five sixteen. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. What Paul is telling us here is that we should be conscious of how much time we are devoting to certain things. Be conscious of what fills your time. See, your time on this earth is short. And because that time on earth is short, make sure you use it effectively. One of my favorite books is this book called Don't Waste Your Life. And in this book, it's basically devoted to this topic about not wanting to get to the end of your life and looking back on your life and saying, well, I just completely wasted my life. I should have been doing these things. I should have had these priorities. And instead, I was chasing after these things over here. This entire book talks about the fact that we don't know how much time we have. So don't waste the time that you do know you have. Another reason that Paul tells us that we should be wise uh, and another way that we can be uh, a good steward of our time and and make sure that we're doing this is because the days are evil. If you look around you and you see how wicked the society is, how evil seems to be happening every single place that you look, Paul's saying, you know, make sure that you are a good steward of your time. Make sure that you are being intentional about following God in those times because it's easy for us to get off track. It's easy for us to chase after other things that aren't good. So be a good steward of your time. Well, that may sound pretty easy, you know, just to, you know, hypothetically, theoretically say, well, that's good, good. let's go be good stewards of our time. But how on earth do we actually do that? How do we apply that into our lives? Well, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about some practical things that we can do in our lives to make sure that we are being a good steward of the time that God has given us. For some of you, these things may uh, be completely second nature. You may be saying, yeah, I've been doing that since I was 10. For others of you, it might be something that is completely, utterly foreign to you. I'm not saying that this is the best way to be a good steward of your time. I'm just saying that one of the most important things to do is be give this conscious thought. Give conscious thought to the concept and the topic of being a good steward of the time that God has given you. So the first thing I would recommend is just budget your time weekly. The beautiful thing about our calendar is every single week has the exact same amount of time in it. Sure, there might be uh, more things that you have to do in a given week than another week, but you know how much time you have each week. When we budget our money, this is basically essentially us spending our money on paper before we spend it in person. It allows us to control our money rather than the money controlling us. Same thing can be said about our time. When we budget our time on paper, when we budget and plan ahead on how we're going to spend our time, we are in control. Not letting our schedules control us. If you uh, want an, a way to budget your time, after this, this morning, this sermon is going to be posted online on our website, crosswinds.tv. And if you go check that out, I'm going to have a PDF of how I budget my time on there. It's just a really simple sheet that I fill out every Sunday evening about how to schedule and make sure that I have time for rest and how I have time uh, to work and, and do all these things and make sure that I have the right priorities in my life. And so uh, I'm not saying that you need to use that. I'm not saying it's the best one, but I'd love for you guys to look at that. That'll be online uh, after we're done here this morning. Another thing that we should do uh, is to begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. How many of you set goals on a consistent basis or have a life plan? One of The fascinating things about us as humans is that we tend to spend more time picking out paint colors for our houses, planning our vacations, than we do actually planning the lives that God has given us. When we plan our life, when we go through a life plan and set goals in our life, we're basically asking ourselves, well, how do I want to be remembered? How do I want to make an impact in the lives of those who are around us? How do I want to make a difference in this world? I first got started on this whole life plan thing by a guy named Michael Hyatt. Michael Hyatt is the former CEO of one of the nation's largest publishing companies and an evangelical Christian. And he points out that for a life plan, the purpose of doing that is so that way you make sure you have the right priorities in your life. You know what you should dedicate more time to as opposed to less time to. And when we have a life plan, when we begin with the end in mind, it ultimately helps us to plan ahead. You see, I love uh, this one quote. It's my wife's favorite quote. It's my favorite quote. It's uh, actually reveals our our bedtime habits. Um, It's a quote by John Piper. It says, sometimes you need to stop trying to save the world and just go to bed by 9 p.m. Sometimes you need to stop trying to save the world and just go to bed by 9 p.m. Yeah, that reveals that my wife and I look for any excuse to go be, go to bed early. Uh, the, what, Paul, what John Piper is saying in this quote is basically that if you want to dedicate time to getting up before your children go, uh, wake up or before you go to work, if you want to dedicate time to God in his word, then the most important thing that you should do is to plan ahead. You should go to bed early so that way you can get up early because if you're going to stay up until one o'clock watching a movie or or whatever, you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of lifestyle. So Make sure you plan ahead. Make sure you begin with the end in mind. And the final thing that I want to mention here as we're talking about stewarding our time is know your limits. Just know the limits that you have. You see, God has created us as finite beings. That's a good thing. God has created us to have to depend upon Him, have to depend on those who are around us, and that's okay. It reminds us to remain humble. In fact, I think that's one of the the primary reasons why God has us sleep, why sleep is so important for us as humans. It's a reminder that God continues to work, and we have to spend up to a third of our life doing absolutely nothing. Know your limits. As I was talking with Pastor Kurt about this, he pointed out that every single person has a different size dinner plate of things that they can handle in their lives. For some of us, we have a really small dinner plate. We can only handle so many things. It's basically like a little saucer. For most of us, we have a regular size dinner plate. We can handle an average amount of stuff. But for some people, we have like a turkey platter. And when you hang out with people like that, you just wonder how on earth they keep going, how on earth they keep doing things. See, comparisons can be good. Comparisons can help us learn on better ways for us to steward our time. But they can also be very dangerous. Know your own limits. See, it takes me a lot longer to prepare a sermon than it does Pastor Kurt, but a lot of that has to do with our context. He's been doing this for several years. I've been doing it for several weeks. <laughs> on the flip side, Pastor Kurt gets really frustrated because I'm up at 4.30 or 5 every morning starting work. But I also don't have three kids. Comparisons can be dangerous. Make sure that you know your limits on how to steward your time. Second, wisdom consists of seeking God's will. Let's continue here in Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When I was young, these choose-your-own-adventure novels were really really pretty popular. You guys remember those? Choose-your-own-adventure novels. It basically was like an interactive book. And so let's say you're starting a book about a safari. And so you begin reading about this safari, and you're on the safari, and then you get to a, a point where you have to make a decision. You can either go wrestle with a lion and turn to page 26, or if you want to go look at the giraffes, you go turn to page 31. As a little boy, of course, you decide to go wrestle with the lions, and so you turn to page 26, and you get eaten on page 27. That's the end of the story should have gone and and looked at the lions or looked at the giraffes because the rest of the book is about how you should have done that. I think a lot of times we look at God's life or God's will for our lives in the exact same way. We look at it as a choose-your-own-adventure novel. We're so paralyzed with fear about making the wrong decision, about choosing to go wrestle the lions rather than looking at the giraffes, that we're going to turn to the wrong page, and we're going to miss out on the rest of the story that God has for us. That's not what God's will is about. To understand what God's will is, to understand how we seek God's will for our lives, we have to first define the term. In Scripture, we see the will of God used in three different ways. First, God's will is referred to as God's will of decree. This is the way that God uh, sovereignly decrees how things will happen. This is the fact that God is in charge, that God is never caught off guard by the things that happen, that God is never taken by surprise, but he has a plan and he knows what's going to happen. This is God's will of decree. The fact that he spoke creation into existence is an example of this will of decree. This will of decree is a very encouraging thing for us in the midst of our uncertainties because even when we don't know what's going to happen, we know that God does. So that's one form of God's will that we see in Scripture. Second form of God's will is God's will of desire. This is basically what God desires for our lives, how he desires that we will live our lives. This is the commandments, the the desire that God wants us to be holy as we see in Scripture. That's what Ephesians is talking about here, that God desires that we would know how to live holy lives, that we would seek God's will in that way. This is found throughout the pages of Scripture, and it's really pretty straightforward. If you want to know what God's will is, well, you open the Bible, and that's about it. That's God's will of desire. But that's not what we commonly think of when we think of God's will and seeking God's will for our lives, and that's the final area, God's will of direction. See, when we think of God's will, we often think of, well, our situation right now. What is God's will for me? Should I go to this college or should I go to that college? Should I serve in this ministry or that ministry? Should I buy a house or should I continue to rent? Should I take this job or that job? We begin to work ourselves up in a frenzy, wondering what God's will is for our lives in these different areas. But the fascinating thing is this is rarely found in Scripture. The will of direction is rarely found in Scripture. So how do we seek God's will of direction in our lives? Well, first, we should seek God's will through Scripture. We should seek God's will of desire before we begin to seek God's will of direction. It's important, it's far more important for us to be the person that God wants us to be than to be where God wants us to be. So seek God's will of direction as it's revealed in Scripture. Second, seek wise counsel. This is a beautiful thing about the church. Church is a group of other Christians who are able to speak into you. If you have a question about whether it's wise for you to purchase a house or not, ask those who are around you. God has given you a Christian community to seek the counsel of that community. Third, and I, I say this not flippantly, but seriously, just use your brain. God has given each and every one of us an astounding gift in the ability to think. The ability to think, the ability to use our brain to to reason, to think through the different options, to weigh them, and to see what we think will be the best opportunity for us to serve God, to seek God, which can help us to grow the most. That's a good thing. God has given you a brain. Trust it. And the fourth area is to trust your Holy Spirit-guided conscience. See, God's Spirit is going to lead us. God's Spirit will speak to us through our conscience. Just trust it. So how do we seek God's will? Well, first we seek God's will by praying like crazy. We seek God's will through asking other people about what we should be doing. We seek God's will through seeking Him in Scripture. And ultimately we just use our brain. We think about what is the best way for us to serve God in these areas. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that we should wait for a literal sign from God or hear the audible voice of God telling us what we should do when we have one of these tough decisions in our lives. If you look at the the life of Paul in the book of Acts, he goes to several different cities. He spends decades of his life going on missionary journeys to different locations, and on all of his journeys of all the cities that he's visited, only once or twice does he actually receive a sign from God about where he should go. The rest of the time, we see Paul strategically thinking of where God is needed the most. If these people haven't heard the gospel, well, he's going to go and tell them. If these people need to be encouraged, well, he's going to go and tell them. We see the words, and it seemed good to us. Or we thought that it was the best thing, that this is the way God was leading us. We see that much more often in the book of Acts than we see God giving Paul a clear, visible sign of his direction. You see, seeking God's will in our lives is a good thing. It's what Paul commands here in Ephesians. We should seek to be the person that God wants us to be before we seek to be where God wants us to be. Let's continue. Finally, wisdom. Wisdom uh, ultimately comes through God's Spirit. Let's finish our passage here in Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, in this process of seeking out wisdom to be wise in our own lives, we have to recognize that true wisdom ultimately comes from God's Spirit. True wisdom doesn't come just as a natural byproduct of getting older. It doesn't come from reading self-help books. God's wisdom comes from being indwelt with His Spirit. Now, this passage that, we, that I just read, it sparks a lot of debates in the church. It sparks debates over whether we can be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit, uh, or whether we need to be baptized again with the Holy Spirit as a Christian. And there are a lot of debates going on about that. We don't have a, to- a lot of time to-, to go into all those, but I do want to say one or two things. First of all, as Christians, every single one of us has been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in the beginning of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul tells us that every single Christian has received the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of their future inheritance until that we one day acquire possession of it. So every single Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. There's no need for a second baptism of the Holy Spirit to come upon us because we have the Spirit within us. But at the same time, We can be more full of the Spirit, less full of the Spirit. What Paul is telling us here is that we should seek to be holy, that we should seek to be filled with God's Spirit through the ways that we live our lives. So how? How do we get filled with this Holy Spirit of God? Well, the interesting thing is the rest of our passage, Paul talks about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What are the natural outpourings of being filled with the Spirit of God? That's what he talks about in the end. But also, that's how we can get filled with the Spirit. We can do the things that we would do if we were filled with the Spirit. And so that's what he finishes with here. And the first one is to be in God's Word. Notice what he says in verse 19. In verse 19, he tells us that we should speak to one another in psalms. In other words, we should be so saturated with Scripture. We're able to recall it and to use it to edify one another. we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit of God by seeking his will through scripture and encountering him there. Another thing is to be an encouraging Christian community. One of the interesting things about our culture is our culture is all about uh, individualism or self-sufficiency, and we desire to uh, be on our own and we think all that's necessary is for me to have a relationship with God for it's just me and God well, that's exact opposite of what we see revealed in scripture in scripture we see that Christian community is not only a good thing it's a vital thing and God uses a good encouraging Christian community to fill us with his spirit next thing is just worship worship in your life every single act that we do, every single thing that we do, whether it is setting up on a Sunday morning for worship services, whether it is in your interactions with your children or with your spouse or with your coworkers, every single thing that we do can be an act of worship to God when we choose to do it in the right way. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll be intentionally worshiping God in the way that you live your life. Another way to do this is to be intentionally thankful. Notice what Paul says here in this verse. He doesn't tell us that we should just be thankful when we feel like it. We shouldn't just be thankful when the situations are good, but we should be thankful in every situation that we face. Because we have been given enough through Christ for us to be thankful. And finally, we should put others first. Christianity at its core is an others-centered religion. We should be focus on how we can serve and love those who are around us. That's one of the beautiful things about Love Spencer yesterday. We had the chance to do this with other Christians, to serve other Christians, but also to serve those who are outside of the church. It's a great, wonderful opportunity for us, and it's so, so wonderful. I uh, would love for you, if you have the chance next year, to, to participate, but also to do that on a daily basis with those Christians that you come into contact with. At the same time that we are filled with God's Spirit, we also have to recognize that we have to be under the influence of His Spirit rather than under the influence of other things in our lives. The thing that Paul brings up here is the influence of alcohol. What Paul is basically saying is that for us to be under the influence of alcohol is to not be under the influence of God Himself. Now, in Scripture, the consumption of alcohol is not forbidden. The abuse of alcohol is So Paul tells us of of ways that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. For some of us, the temptation to abuse alcohol is so great that we should completely abstain from it. For others of us, beer tasting and wine tasting is a great, wonderful cultural entertainment experience that someone who has a really unrefined palate like me can't really handle and, and grasp and understand. Be under the influence of God's Spirit, not under the influence of alcohol. It's not just the influence of alcohol that we have to be aware of. There are countless other influences that we have to uh, guard ourselves against. I think of two other things. One of them is music. And the other thing that we should be aware of is the way our consumeristic culture acts and behaves and handles itself. I'm going to share something with you that uh, might cause me to lose a lot of respect in the eyes of many of you. And that is I love rap. I, uh, before I was a Christian... I listened to a lot of people that uh, I'm not even going to mention here because you probably wouldn't recognize the names, and, and I would be embarrassed if I said them anyway. But before I was a Christian, I listened to a lot of, of pretty uh, profane rap. And I kept telling myself that I was only listening to it for the beat and not for the words. Whenever I would have a friend come and challenge me on this, this subject, that was what I would say. And of course, it was complete and utter garbage. You can't just you know, blot out those words like that. So when I became a Christian... I recognized that God wasn't being glorified, that this wasn't good for my spiritual life for me to be listening to this kind of music. And praise God that Christian rap finally got good when I became a Christian. Because up until that point, it seemed like it wasn't all that good. And now I, I listen to guys like The Truth and KB. I, I get the chan- I've had the chance to talk with people like Lecrae and Trip Lee, and they've been so uh, instrumental in my spiritual walk. I've even had the chance to rap with one of these guys, and yes, there is a video, and no, I'm not going to show it to you. It is awful. That's why I'm here in northwest Iowa, and not in Atlanta or something like that. God must be glorified in the things that we listen to, because words matter. Check what influence you are under when you're listening to your music. Second, our consumeristic culture. See, the truth is, we have no idea how pervasive the consumerism of our culture is. This is really uh, evident in the ways that we can remember commercials just like that. The other day I was driving and this car from Nationwide Insurance just drove by and uh, wasn't even thinking about it. I just subconsciously, instinctively began to say, Nationwide is nice you guys are just as influenced by our consumeristic culture as i am so that makes me feel a little better no our consumeristic culture tells us that we have to accumulate more that we have to have the newest toy that we have to keep up with the joneses for us to be happy one theologian basically put it this way that we have two ways that we can be happy in this life we can accumulate more and more or we can desire less in our lives, if we are under the influence of our consumeristic culture, we will begin to accumulate more and more with every single thing that we do. That's not being under the influence of God's word. God's word and God's spirit tells us that we should desire less. We should be others centered, as I mentioned earlier. Friends, that's really what this is all about. At the beginning of our time this morning, I mentioned a quote from this guy, Carl Sagan, about insignificance. And I, I just want to close with that, uh, with another paragraph from his book called Pale Blue Dot. Uh, and it's it's kind of long, but I just want you to listen to this. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our ex- obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from somewhere else to save us from ourselves. It's a really, really depressing look at God's creation. So you think Carl Sagan is on to something. We, by ourselves, in the grand scheme of things... look at the size of the universe, the size of creation, are really insignificant. But God, in his good, sovereign plan, has decided to make a way for us to have significance in our lives. To make a difference in the lives of those who are around us. A difference of eternal importance. He, He mentioned there that no one is going to come and save us from ourselves. The cross speaks otherwise. In the cross, God came and died for an insignificant speck in the grand scheme of things. God came and chose to give his life for us that we might be able to live for the lives of those who are around us. To live a life that makes a difference. and To live a life that's full of his goodness and his wisdom from that significant identity that we have in Christ. Let's go and live wisely. Let's go live these lives where we can be good stewards of our time, where we can intentionally seek after God's will, and where we can be filled with his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you have done for us the fact that we each have a new identity in Christ. Such an incredible, wonderful blessing. God, we pray that you would enable us and equip us to live wisely. That we would become good stewards of our time. That we would continue to seek after your will of desire. Becoming the people that you want us to be. And that God, we would be filled with your Holy Spirit. And as we are filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would live each day for you and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.